there's probably no better instrument that sets the tone, can establish a mood than a stringed instrument, the violin. Any, Any kind of music, by the way, has some natural talent. But an instrument like the violin is the practice of technique over and over and over. And what we heard in three minutes is the result of hours and hours and hours of squeaking and shrilling and the mom and the dad saying, close the door. Thank you. Exodus chapter 33, please. If it happened to be your responsibility to preach and or to share biblical insight on missions, what portion of scripture would you use? Are you familiar enough with missions that you would even know what portion? you would use? Is there a missions mindset in your mind? What passage would you hope to find that would soften the hearts of the audience? That would be a tool that God could use. Most of us would probably turn to a New Testament passage because to us, we think that's where missiology reverberates. But today's message comes from Exodus 33, This passage of Scripture has been on my desktop now for probably a year. I preached a general message at a church uh, from Exodus 33, but not a missions message. And as I was preparing for it, a verse just bounced off my brain. And I just set it there as a message to preach in the future when I would preach on missions. The background to Exodus 33 is the golden calf incident is just behind them. And God, in a merciful act, gives them another opportunity for the Ten Commandments to be dictated again. Just to let you know where we're headed, I'm going to give you three thoughts that are still introductory. First of all, the context is found in Exodus 33, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence. And thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, which I swear to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, To thy seed will I give it. It is a call to service. It is a call to be involved in God's ministry. It is a call to missions. And that the ministry is taken to a different land. It is likewise a reminder of the integrity of God's word. That though they had, in fact, they were still around the golden calf setting. That though though that had happened to them, God said, I am the God that gave my promise to Jacob, to Abraham, to such and such, and to such and such. Therefore, so the introduction or the context is the integrity of the word of God. But it's also God soliciting a human being to serve him. The conflict is what happens in the heart of humanity. Verse 3, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not 
I will not go up with you. For I will not go up with you in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee. Verse 5. For the Lord had said unto Moses, saying to the children of Israel, Ye are stiff-necked people. I will come up unto the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee, therefore now put off thy ornaments. Wow. They were still in a party mindset. Do you happen to know anybody who is stiff-necked stubborn? Why did you not immediately think of yourself? Moses wanted to experience God in a most unusual and necessary way. So here comes the counsel. And this is the verse that I just don't know what to do with. So I find the context, it is a sinning people being regrouped by God, where one person is asked to be involved in leadership ministry. The conflict is the people have already been disbanded by God because of them being stubborn. The council is an amazing reality that, quite frankly, I don't know how to put it to words, much less even preach it. Verse 21. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me. How does God do that? Who is holy? Who is sovereign? Who cannot look upon evil? Who has given and given and given and been used and been used and been defied and defied. And God still say, there's a place by me. <coughs> Literally it's saying, see, there is a place. And this is being said to a person who had murdered a human. Just went and killed a guy had used every excuse possible to let God know that he wasn't available for service, wasn't available for ministry, did not want to be used in God's kingdom, had to take anger management courses for 40 years. And God said, look, there's a place by me. Moses was struggling with the issue of serving God. And God was trying to convince Moses that the issue was seeing God. And I'll say this several times. I think that you and I think that when we come to the ultimate place of our yielding to God, we think it's serving. When the real issue is seeing. Is it possible that too many of us focus on serving God instead of seeing God? Do we desire to see God? Do we desire to sense close fellowship? Do we desire communion with God? Do you know where that place is? For eight years almost, I have sat on the first chair up here in the front. Most of you in the back don't see me because I'm short. 
and the front rows are anathema to you. So you don't, I sit there every time. On occasion, somebody who's mean-spirited will sit down first, and I have to rebuke them and give them church discipline and let them know you are not to do that. That's my place. But next to me is a place that is usually empty. In fact, I make sure it's empty. I put my briefcase there. And it's there not because I don't like people. It's there for my wife when she comes to chapel. Probably five years ago, we had a freshman come to class, to school, and he was a nice guy, and he asked if he could sit by me. And I said, sure, no problem. So he sat in the place beside me. And I thought, okay, love, how are you going to handle this? Ah, it's just today. So the second day, he sat in the place beside me. The third, fourth day, in the place beside me. I finally had to share to him in a joking way that freshmen were not allowed to sit that close to faculty. (laughs) I did. (laughs) We are faculty. You are freshmen. So he said, well, do you mind if I then sit one space over? I said, fine. Just leave this space. Outline, I find, first of all, the dialogue, verses 1 through 6. There's a dialogue between God and man, which, again, is a phenomenal thing that our God speaks to us. Verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart, and go up hence. Thou and the people which thou hast brought up out. God had done it, but now he says, They're your people. Which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. The offers the all there. For I will not go up with thee, or go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. And when the people heard these sayings, these evil tidings, they mourned. And no man did put on him his ornaments. And the Lord said unto Moses, See, or say unto the children of Israel, Ye are stiff-necked people. I will come up in the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. There's a test going to go on. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. The dialogue. There is something within these verses, by the way, that says volumes about what is offered at the end of this chapter, verse 21. God is testing the heart of His people before He offers His presence to them. Notice the bigger picture in verse 3 and 4. Unto a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with thee because you are stiff-necked. There are two thoughts going on here. I call it measurement number one or movement number one and movement number two or their test and their testimony. Their test is verses 1 and 2. I am going to let you go in. I paraphrase a sermon I heard probably a month ago. And what has been established here in this test is the threat of the desertion of God. Did it matter to them, they who had chased the golden calf? They who had labeled that calf the God who brought them out of Egypt. Then there's a test we would refer to as the the desertion of God. And what is being proposed, listen carefully, is I will still let you go into the promised land. I will still drive out all of your enemies. I will still give you all the blessings of the promised land, but I will not go with you. Are you more interested in the land 
or me? Are you more interested in serving God than me? Are you more interested in obedience than me? Let's put it this way, as I heard in this sermon. I will still give you heaven. I will still give you your redeemed heavenly bodies. I will still take away all your fears, your weak faith, every disease. I'll abolish death, but I will not be in heaven. Would you still want to go? Would you still want a heaven without Jesus? And you say, well, Dr. Love, theologically, there'd be no heaven without Jesus. I guess we could ask it this way. Why do you want to go to heaven? And we would usually answer because death is abolished. Disease is gone. Heartache is gone. Or is it Jesus is there? Lovest thou me more than these? So movement number one is a test. Moses, I need you to serve me. But Moses, I need to somehow verify, is the service to me the ultimate issue in your life, or is it me? I am deserting his people temporarily as a test, but do I need to do the same to you? Can I use you as a litmus test to the nation that indeed you have a passion for me, which, by the way, any missions call that does not include and demand and present a passion for God more than a passion for seeing people saved, that passion is on a second-tier level. God will always be in that ministry, but people responding to the ministry will not always be there. And if I'm ministering on behalf of God for the sake of response to God, I'm doing so on a second-tier level. Worship becomes what I can do to create an atmosphere to cause response. Obedience is done on behalf of the fact that I'm doing so because I need to show a testimony. It is not, and I dare not use this because it's so common, it's not based on who God is. But then I have to ask myself, do I teach based on who God is? Do I preach? Do I have my Bible time based on who God is? We heard the words, the deep love of God. Is it reciprocated? Movement number one is a test. Are you in college because of the love of God constraineth me? Are you honoring your parents? Is there an established witness testimony that has integrity with your relationship with your significant other? Because of the love of God. Moses, I'm not going. I have dated in my Bible, it's not this one, but it's a Bible that I use on Sundays, that is stated January 10th, 2004, right next to this context. And I know for a fact what was happening around that time. It appeared that God was opening a significant door for us in our ministry there in Georgia. And property was being given, over a million dollars worth of property, 20-some-odd acres right off the freeway, buildings that needed great repair. But it was a phenomenal thing. 
And I remember coming to the conclusion that I don't want to go if God's not going to go with us. It was free. Our church had to relocate. Our church had established the fact that we needed to. But do we want to do these things that are called the will of God if the presence of God is not there? Movement number two was their testimony. We're still under the first point. The first point is the dialogue. It is amazing God talking to man, allowing man to talk to God. And now comes movement number two, Exodus chapter 33, verse 3. Unto a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, it's all there. For I will not go up in the midst of thee. For thou art stiff-necked. Verse 5 says the same thing. And by the way, if you're right there close, chapter 32, verse 9 says the same thing. What does stiff-necked mean? It is usually used to illustrate the horse and the mule. Psalm 32, verse 8 says, Be not as uh, the horse and the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come unto thee or near thee. Now, the context of Psalm 32, which I just used as a cross-reference passage, it is the context of David confessing his sin, and catch this, and being brought back into service for God. And God lays the ground rules to not be as these two animals. Why these two animals? I'm not going to make it more than it is. Why not bumblebee? They're part of God's creation. But not a chickadee. Why not a worm? I was going to say, why not a cat? But that's not even plausible. <laughs> he uses the horse. I'm not going to make more of this than it is. Other than to say, these two animals were created as service animals. Two extremes of why they reject service. The horse is a free-spirited animal wanting to do his own thing. Useless for service because he wants to do his own thing. The mule is stubborn-spirited, not wanting to do your thing. And yet both were created to find fulfillment Both were created to find fulfillment in service. David, I am restoring you to fellowship, and this fellowship includes service. And be not as. These animals, they were created for service. Like the horse who's free-spirited that all he cares about is his agenda. The mule does not care about your agenda. So I ask, why were you created? Is it possible that a lot of relationship with God, those places beside God, don't get taken because we are too free-spirited toward our own things or too stubborn-spirited that we want nothing to do with it? I am not speaking self-righteously because I've been in the ministry 
40 plus years. This is not a self-righteous statement. This is a statement of analysis. There is no way, no way, based upon the call of God, that we have as few people as we do today responding to the call of God. For it to be that everybody is in the will of God. There is free spiritedness going on. There is a stubborn spirit going on. And the last thing that we would think about is having a relationship so close that we would be beside God. If we can operate taking people to the promised land, it doesn't matter if the presence of God is not with us. Because it's looked upon that we are actively involved in kingdom theology. I find the dialogue. I find, secondly, the directives, the instructions. If you want to preach the same sermon but change the outline so it's yours. The second point, you could put down instructions. Verse 7. And Moses took the tabernacle, God had disassociated, and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord, when the convicting grace of God said, I will not go with you. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. Keep in mind that we know that the tabernacle, the camp was built around it. This is different. Verse 8, and it came to pass when Moses went out of the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as they looked, Moses entered into the tabernacle. And as they looked, the presence of God became visible. I am not going with you. And now here in the mercy of God, we find that this cloud of pillar that represents the presence of God is seen. Did they nudge each other? Did they say he's back? And stood every man, verse 8, and it came to pass as Moses entered the tabernacle, the cloudy pillars descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillars stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but the servant Joshua, the son of Nun, the young man departed not out of the tabernacle. God was now actively giving vivid instructions. The directives actually begin at verse 5. Put off your ornaments. Again, I'm not going to go and take this more than it should be, but it appears that the glitters of the world can either help us make golden calves 
or be set aside to serve God. The point is made that God distanced himself from the people. And the distance was very evident. They saw it. They sensed it. Is it possible that some here have so many ornaments around our lives that we don't even know where God is? We've lost a closeness that we once had. We don't have the closeness that we need. And here's what happens. Verse 7. There was nothing private about this. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off. And people got up from their tent and walked to this tabernacle. It was public. Again, I'm not going to make more of this than I should. It was a self-motivated, I'm not saying not God-led, invitation. I am going to reacquaint seeing God. And it's outside the camp because God has deserted us. And by my example, if you should choose to get up from your tent and come, there's no head count. The preacher wasn't putting in his Bible or his notes. So many people walk forward on this service. But I have to believe that there was a stillness as Moses did this. I have to believe that some child that does not know propriety said, Dad, look, Jacob is going. Dad, should we? Can the whole family go? He said, why do you know kids say those things? Because kids say those things. My four-year-old grandson and I were wrestling the other day. And the pant leg on my pant came up to about my knee and my Grandson looked at me, he said, Grandpa, you have big hairs on your legs. Why do four-year-olders say things like that? Because four-year-olders say things like that. So I have to believe without a theological premise that somebody said, are we going? Can everybody? What happens to those who don't? It was very sacred Verse 7, and Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the Lord. And it came to pass that everyone which sought, if God's going to say there's a place beside me, surely there has to be those who have the appetite to sought, to seek God. The idea of this word is that of seeking on account of desire, of seeking with an intent to find. And the majority of the uses of this word of seeking revolve around the truth of worship and or prayer implications. It is not something that is coerced because the animal analogy has already been given. It is something where service is not demanded by pulling the reins, putting the bridle on and whipping. It is their saying... Here I am, do you want me? Or do you just want the promised land with the houses already built, the fields already cleared? Or do you want me? If 
find the dialogue. Movement number one is a test. And that is, I'll give you all the blessings of life that I have promised, but I won't go with you. Movement number two. Are you going to take my offer? And if you are, here's a preliminary test. The desire, verse 20, actually verse 12, wherefore should the Egyptians, chapter 33, 12. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring this people, and thou knowest not, thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name. And thou hast also found grace, and I have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said, no, 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 I want more. For when shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace? I like something public. So God says, Moses, I'll do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And now, and he said, I, 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 I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will... Show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And that's not a selective statement. It is being said to the nation who had just served a golden calf. And he said, verse 20, But thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. But God so wants to fellowship with us that he says, Behold, there is a place by me. Moses was not satisfied with being called into service. He needed to see. It was more important to him. Service to God must include seeing, because service to God is more the responsibility, and seeing is more the relationship. Moses is affirming, and God brought Moses to this place of realizing that seeing God should be part of the package of serving God. That companionship with God is the real need in carrying out the call of God. That every blessing offered within the promised land is empty if the presence of God is not there. I want to draw things to a close by pausing for a moment around a verse that I don't know how to preach. And the Lord said, Behold, There is a place by me. There's a ledge on the rock. There's a cleft on this rock. Does this place interest anyone here today? Theological work study of the Old Testament book says that this word place, infrequently it applies to what? To that where nothing is. Hence, Open space, always available. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in I wonder if a 
doesn't stop Lady Fox. There's a place by me, a cleft in the rock. It's open. Do you want it? Heavenly Father, thank you for using the life of Moses to illustrate a struggle that we have. We live panting for the promised land while ignoring the God who promised it. We live thinking that we've experienced a martyrdom experience by saying, I'll serve you, whereas we need to see you. And so I pray that you would use truth to convict hearts that need to accept truth. We ask this in your name. Amen.